0: This is a FUBAR Radio podcast. Go to FUBARradio.com for more details.
1: FUBAR Radio presents FUBAR
2: Radio presents Politics on FUBAR. Hello and welcome to Politics on FUBAR Radio. I'm Mike, I'm the Exec Director of a company called Shape History. We're a social change company based in London and New York and today we're going to be talking about disability in the workplace um, with an extended interview with Jared Amara, MP of Sheffield Hallam. Um, Now, in the news, we've seen that um, only yesterday that the UN have denounced uh, the British government for failing to protect disabled people's rights. And just to read from a piece from The Independent, they said that the government has been criticised by the United Nations for failing to uphold the rights of disabled people through a string of austerity policies. An inquiry into the UK's progress in fulfilling its commitments to the major UN Convention found ministers have failed people with disabilities through a catalogue of policies in recent years, affecting a range of areas from access to healthcare to inequality in education and work. So in the light of that, um, we're going to be discussing the accessibility difficulties of disabled people in the workplace and how the government can better support people with disabilities and what employers should do to make the situation better for their employees and much more than that. Now, before we get into that in particular, I thought it was important to kind of frame this in the discussion in in terms of the work that, that I do with the the gang at Shape History here in London, um, so essentially we run social change campaigns that help and support people of any de- degrees of inequality or discrimination and work with specialist charities to enable people to be able to do that. Um, so we have a team of six or well, actually now up to eight uh, campaigners in London and a few in New York that work with organisations such as uh, Anthony Nolan Blood Cancer Charity, Macmillan, um, um, and also, for instance, cancer research, to really try to figure out exactly how we can turn audiences online into activists. And when in particularly working with um, Arthritis Research UK, who are on a, a, a later on in the program to talk about how the struggle with anyone who faces inequality, but but really disability in particular, is is the need to talk about it, the need to to essentially have a voice and give these people a voice and amplify it and, And and quite frankly, the the inability for people who who face um, discrimination in the workplace because of their disability or in general, and and their inability to talk about it even with their family and friends. Um, This comes also in the light. So the news um, yesterday that the UN is denouncing the UK in particular um, for its terrible contributions um, to improving the livelihoods of people living with disability in the UK and how even able-bodied allies can help and contribute and support people in that situation. Situation. Um, in the light of that we've we've also seen news that there's been some findings through from Sc- uh, Scope, which is the, the UK's leading disability charity. We've got Richard on the show a little bit later talking about that. Well, we found that actually there's been no progress in the last year, few years since the Paralympic Games in 2012 was held in London. There's been absolutely no progress in, in shifting the stigma from the general public of p- how people feel about discrimination or how people feel about how they uh, present themselves in the workplace um, if they are disabled or generally in life. Um, There's also the news that actually... We, well, we work with young people um, all the time who kind of struggle to get their voice heard and we work with people who fight against inequality at Shape History and especially those um, who need uh, to, to address their voice and amplify their voice further. So actually this particular topic along with the idea that the UN have, have recently, um, yesterday denounced the UK and equally the news in, um, in 2012 with the Olympics and, and finding that there's no been, been no progress or little progress in shifting that stigma. we've I think it was a really important issue to discuss today. So we've got a- a string of really influential guests, top speakers and experts to talk to us about essentially how it will work and how we can improve the livelihoods of people uh, living um, as uh, a disabled person in the UK. And particularly what I wanted to focus on was uh, the, the striking stat that... People who, I mean, we've all we, to get a job or to get an interview. We've all maybe told the old porky pie on a CV. We've all just maybe hidden a little bit about ourselves. That's what we naturally do. We we ex- sort of express the the positive sides or the side that we think the employer is going to like. But actually, we then take away or maybe bury a little bit those things that you think. The employer is not going to like like I don't know your your drinking habits on a Friday night or I don't know where you want to go partying on a Saturday. You probably wouldn't put that on your CV. But there are an essential part of there are are essential parts of you as a human being who make you you. And I'm not saying that that being disabled or a disabled person is a is something which which actually defines a person, but is a core part of actually who that person is and the way that they live their life. And the striking statistic from Scope is that people would rather make, them, make their disability invisible on their CV just to get an interview. And we found that actually people who do put their dis, uh, disability on a CV find that they don't get any interviews in the first place. So there was a, a news in, in BuzzFeed um, just yesterday, uh, a, a story that said, and I'm going to quote, I'm from the UK and have muscular dystrophy. While at college, I applied to work as a well-known music store working on the tills. During the interview, they mentioned stacking shelves, and I said that I couldn't do that um, but I could potentially use a trolley if it was available to carry heavy things um, or to crouch and I couldn't really crouch down to fill low shelves um, they said that that was fine as the job was mainly till-based anyway I went home having thought the interview went really well but I got a call saying I was perfect for the job but I wouldn't be liable due to my disability so they couldn't offer it to me I was shocked if only I had knew about discrimination laws back then and this was 15 years ago, apparently. And it was submitted to BuzzFeed just yesterday. So there's an incredible amount of discussion, I think, that needs to happen around the issue of discrimination in the workplace or discrimination of um, people who are disabled in life in general and it's the same of as any inequality really it needs to be spoken about the conversation needs to happen and we need to just have a frank and open discussion about actually what's going to make it better because i think w- what's also crucial is that when you look at any form of inequality or any discrimination you can split it usually between incidental discrimination and or discrimination that actually lies in hatred. And we may find later on, and I'll be talking to the guests about this in particular, that when we look at the UK's um, or the UN and denouncing the UK for its terrible contributions to helping and supporting people with disabilities in the UK, and that's got a lot to do with the (laughs) the terrible um, cuts uh, in terms of budgets uh, that have made it impossible for people to facilitate people with with, um, disabilities, I'd love to just unpack a little bit what is incidental discrimination what is due to the fact that people don't understand this issue enough what is it that they don't understand and therefore they can't feel that they can actually talk about Um, and actually what is it that is actually based in true hatred and I'm hoping to understand that that a lot of it is down to miscommunication, misunderstanding, and therefore conversations like the one we're about to have, but also conversations in general around any inequality are essential to progressing. So uh, to begin our conversation today, we're going to be hearing from a recruitment expert about the challenges disabled people face in the UK.
3: My name is Jamie Shimkoviak, I'm an expert within recruitment, having been a business owner and a headhunter for FTSE 250 companies. I'm also a disabled rights activist. Two years ago, I started a campaign called One in Five, which looked to address the underrepresentation of disabled people in politics. Over the two years, it's been a Scottish campaign, grassroots cross-party. Unfortunately, we haven't seen an advancement of disabled people in politics as quick as we would like, but we do realise that these of things take time. You know, we've got to take a step back and examine why it is that disabled people are not accessing politics. In one of my previous roles, I was a political advisor to an SNP MP and I worked in the House of Commons. That place is a museum. It's not accessible to disabled people. If we're starting from the point where we have an underrepresented demographic in the House of Commons, then how is it that the rest of us can aspire to one day become an MP or an advisor. There's been a number of disabled politicians that have been elected, that have been fortunate enough to be elected in the past. And in fact, um, there is a current Labour Politician who has um, stated that he finds the Commons Chamber itself really inaccessible and hard for him to um, get a place to join in the debate. I would ask all of our current politicians to push for, especially when we're about to spend billions of pounds in the refurbishment of the House of Commons, is to look at electronic voting. If there was electronic voting, it's something that many modern parliaments have across the world. In fact, the Scottish Parliament has it. That would be something that would make politics more accessible. Disabled people face numerous barriers when we're trying to get into work. And the most obvious one is accessibility into the building. If you're a wheelchair user, if you've got a motability-related impairment, the same for those that have got visual impairments. But also, You know, there's a stigma attached to employing people with learning disabilities um, and if you've got long-term mental health conditions as well. So all these types of people within the disabled or disability umbrella face barriers. And it's sometimes it's the employer themselves not having the confidence or feeling a bit reluctant to embrace disabled people into their workforce. And then there's the absence of role models. So not just within employment, but also if we're looking at in society and on TV, radio and in politics, we're seeing, you know, the gender pay gap constantly in the news. We've just had the first women Doctor Who, for example. So we're seeing women in prominent roles across the board and disabled people do not have that. Um, So I think that once we cross those bridges then we will see further advancements into reducing the employment gap and I think politics is actually a really good place to start.
2: Now that was Jamie there talking about the inequalities that are faced amongst starting a conversation about discrimination in the workplace and the and the absence of role models, the difficulty of employers maybe starting that conversation or having the confidence to start that conversation, and also the struggles that are faced with austerity. Um, so, listening to that package was Jared Amara, Labour MP for Sheffield Hallam, who was elected in June uh, 2017, and we're, we're going to have a chat with Jared now. In fact, if you if you guys are listening have any thoughts and feelings and want to get in touch with us, please get in touch with politics at foobarradio.com or tweet us at Radio, and we'll be including some of your thoughts and feelings and your questions uh, throughout the program. So, um, uh, Jared, are you there? Hi, yes, I am. Hey, Jared. When you were listening to that, to that package, particularly around the, the, the issues of the absence of role models, Um, the difficulty of kind of employers starting that conversation having the confidence to do that Um, but also the the struggles with austerity and how that's faced um, across um, essentially how we can start an honest and open conversation about discrimination um, through people who are disabled in the workplace Um, can I just get your general thoughts and feelings on on this issue in general and then we can maybe dive down into some specifics
4: well shall I uh, start with uh, the issue of role models as uh, that was the first thing you mentioned. On the subject of role models, it's like I've sort of inadvertently uh, uh, become one to s- some people now, and that's all well and good, but the fact is we need a lot more. And uh, I think uh, popular statistics uh, from recently have estimated people with Inequalities Act recognise disability uh, one in five of the UK population. Uh, so... Uh, I think what, uh, roughly 60 million people, uh, one in five of that, that's 12 million people have a uh, disability of some sort. And then furthermore to that, one in every four people have or will have uh, a mental health problem during the course of their life, which is also protected under the Equalities Act in class literally as a disability. So we need to be moving more towards that Uh, in Parliament uh, with the make-up. We need to be looking at having a fifth to a quarter of all uh, MPs... and then in second chamber, which I don't think should be the Lord's, uh, I think it should be in elected second chamber, but that's a different argument entirely, yes. We if to are looking at that that composition moving towards a fifth or a quarter to reflect the actual makeup of society, and then we need diversity in all the different disabilities uh, and, uh, and see people with different uh, impairments and disabilities represented in both chambers,
2: yeah, and, and particularly. And it's, it's wider yes, than ahead. that
4: in terms of role models. We don't see. Uh, when do we see disabled people on TV? And I'm not just talking about, like, say, presenters or anything like that. When do we see disabled actors playing disabled parts? Going right back as far as I can remember, right to when I, uh, I saw uh, uh, Danny Dale always play Christy Brown as, as a young man, when I was a young man, I mean, uh, in my left foot. And he's not got cerebral palsy, and he's playing uh, somebody with cerebral palsy. And this has happened uh, right throughout all acting. Uh, And this has been a debate, actually, uh, in the news this week about how uh, an actor called Ed Steen uh, uh, turned down playing a part in a a film, one of the Hellboy sequels, because uh, he's uh, a Caucasian man who's meant to play uh, an American-Asian man. And it's, it brings it into the wider the debate that we don't see disabled people uh, uh, in in cinema, in television, uh, as actors. Uh, and like I said, that's uh, a whole point around role models. Is there's just just not many out there in the public eye, uh, the forefront uh, in, in the media, in politics, in public life. Uh, uh, in general, yeah. Do you, do you when think he, that also? We start seeing more of that. It's like it's not just me. It's like yes, I've got a disability, but ultimately, I'm just a guy. I'm just as, as flawed and as human as everyone. When you see, start seeing people uh, much better uh, than me, than be, uh, much better role models.
2: Sure, Jared. And, and like, do you think, uh, leaders, Jared? You,
4: leaders, yeah.
2: Sorry, mate. Um, so just with regard to actually the, 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 um, the role models that you're talking about on television, um, it, obviously it's important for, for all inequalities to see themselves represented on television. Is there an element of risk-averseness to selecting actors that you know are going to bring in a crowd right, versus actors that are actually authentic? I know this isn't directly related um, to your every, area of work, but you every, brought it up. Well, if we're
4: talking about acting specifically, every A-list Hollywood actor or starts off as a Z-lister, yeah? Yeah. You've got to make your your name and cut your teeth somewhere and I don't doubt there's uh, a whole wealth of disabled people out there that are talented uh, 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 in the sector of acting and are not getting the chances or are not even being brought through into training at uh, places like Brit School or RADA uh, uh, or uh, 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 other acting companies and other uh, acting schools in uh, training sectors, and they're not being brought through, they're not given a chance, because there's has long been this narrative that, like, all disabled people should sort of be pushed under the carpet, uh, figuratively yeah. speaking, and, and should be, like, uh, well, whilst the, uh, uh, productions, uh, films and uh, cinema will tentatively address disability issues, uh, they don't want to include disabled people uh, within that. And, nor do they want to make it something, uh, that, that comes up as commonplace, particularly. And, it, and disability is commonplace. It's something that, uh, if, if you're, you you do not have a disability yourself, you've got a friend or a loved one that has one, uh, by definition under the Equalities Act. And it needs to start becoming more and more mainstream, uh, across the board in, in every, uh, uh, like public sector, whether it be, like I said, in, uh, uh, in the arts and like with specific reference, reference to acting or whether it be uh, in, in politics or uh, many other as, uh, aspects of ordinary commonplace uh, public life. It needs to be something that is normalised and uh, going back uh, to uh, when disabled people were first like, uh, brought to the forefront, it were in freak shows and, uh, you'd see, like, uh, disabled people paraded about it in freak shows in, like, uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century, etc. And, uh, were, uh, were paraded for other people's entertainment as something grotesque and, uh, as something comedic. And, uh, uh, and like I said, that's the opposite, uh, uh, of, uh, of what we want.
2: Definitely. And I think it's important, as you said, Jared.
4: What what, what we need is, like I said, it it being normalised and it not being something that's taboo and ultimately uh, dating right back to, uh, like I said, those centuries in, in those free shows and those circuses and parades. It's always been something that's taboo and grotesque. When actually, what you'll find is disability, whatever disability it is, whether it's like cerebral palsy like me, or whether it's somebody with a sensory impairment, or whether it's somebody with an autistic spectrum disorder, it's incredibly commonplace and normal. And it's nothing uh, uh, to be uh, pitied, it's nothing to be feared, it's nothing to poke fun at our view is inferior it's incredibly commonplace and normal and we need to be moving towards that narrative.
2: Definitely, I completely appreciate that Jared, thank you so much for joining us, unfortunately we do have to move on to other speakers, so coming up in the studio thank you, you. No problem, see you soon Jared So coming up in our studio discussion on disability, uh, we'll be joined in a minute by Olivia Bell, the Director of External Affairs for Arthritis Research UK Michael Newman, Discrimination and Employment Law Specialist, and Richard Lane, Head of Communications at Scope, and on the phone joining Then we'll have Eleanor Lisney from the British Council of Disability Advisory, sorry, the British Council Disability Advisory Panel. Um, Words there. Um, Does the government, and we'll be asking the question, does the government have a responsibility to improve workplace conditions for people with disabilities? Uh, Before we begin our discussion, I'm going to play you a recording of a debate in the House of Commons. Uh, In this clip, you'll hear Dominic Rapp, uh, Minister of State at the Ministry of Justice, being confronted by a disability rights campaigner called Fiona.
5: You're all talking about numbers and money and there is an ocean of suffering under that. Oxford University just released research saying that uh, in 2015 alone, in England and Wales alone, there were 30,000 excess deaths caused by cuts to health and social care. (laughs) Tens of thousands of disabled and sick people are dying every year. There have been hundreds of suicides. I spent the last—I spent 48 hours after the last general election trying to talk people out of killing themselves, and I didn't always succeed. With the work capability assessment, Napier University and Harriet Watt just released evidence uh, about how it causes almost universal permanent mental damage. Anybody who votes for the Conservative Party who are going to further these cuts, who are going to keep on with these cuts, they are complicit in those deaths. All
4: right, well, let, let Donald
0: And it's very easy, and I can think of lots of things that I would
2: uh, like to avoid making difficult decisions on and m- lots of areas like uh, the health service or schools where I want to put even more money in but unless you've got a strong economy creating the revenue it, it's just a childish wish list. We're trying to do our best to get the balance right between responsible public finances and so in in some of those you, crucial areas you discussed. So you
5: choose to sacrifice tens of thousands of disabled people for the sake of that. This is the 6th or 6th richest country in the world.
2: Now in the studio uh, with us following that t- package uh, from Fiona who was talking in the House of Commons we've got Olivia from the Director of she's the Ex- Director of External Affairs for Arthritis Research UK uh, we've got Michael Newman Discrimination and Employment Law Specialist and Richard from Scope who's the Head of Communications there and on the phone we're joined by Eleanor who is the founding member and coordinator of the Sisters of Frida a disabled women's collective um, so I want to start by asking the question we just heard uh, from the House of Commons um, but in the light of also what's happened um, in the last 24 hours with the UN denouncing the UK explicitly for its lack of commitment to helping and supporting people with disabilities. Does the government have a responsibility to improve workplace conditions for people with disabilities? Olivia can I go to you first?
6: Yeah. What we find is that around a quarter of people with arthritis um, give up work earlier than they they anticipated and that's because there isn't enough um, acknowledgement or Um, discussion around the impact of arthritis on on people's working lives so anything that the government yes should do um, since the Equalities Act there's responsibility to make reasonable adjustments people with arthritis tell us that when those do take place it really really helps them remain in work
2: definitely and particularly Richard as well with regard to the, the notion that people remain would, would choose more to remain hidden on their CV um, or, or hide this their disability to then get a, a chance of being um, interviewed I, as I said before we all maybe tell the old porky pie on the, on our CV but not to the degree of hiding something integral to our to ourself and our, our own our own person um, could you tell us a little bit about your experience um, at scope and also maybe a story or two about how that's been avoided or, or, or challenged
0: yeah I mean- just coming back to your original point it is absolutely time for action from the government so what our research shows is that if you're disabled you are twice as likely to be unemployed as a non-disabled person that gap we call the the disability employment gap has not changed for over a decade uh in the conservative party manifesto back in the election um earlier this year they described disability discrimination as a burning injustice um and we would argue really strongly that that is absolutely true, and the time for action to address that is now. Um, as you said, disabled people do not feel that they are able to be themselves at work. They worry that they're not going to get those jobs if they disclose the fact that they have an impairment or condition, which often means that they're not getting the support that they need at work, which means all too often that they are falling out of the workplace when they have got those jobs.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's also important to consider how disabled people are staying in work as well as getting jobs in the first place, and at the same time, also how they're able bodied. Uh, colleagues can help and support them while at work and also getting into work. Um, I wanted to also just take the conversation over to Eleanor, who joins us on the phone. Um, particularly with Eleanor, with this notion of uh, the UN, so the UN denouncing the UK. I know that you've got some experience um, working in Geneva. Could you tell me a little bit about your opinion as to w- how w- what you think of this, and also how the UK can address this this terrible news that that the UN have denounced us? Um, it, it's not a new
7: thing. I mean, you know, news have been. Uh, raising awareness of this since twenty ten. Uh I should easily say maybe that I'm also part of an account co founder of disabled people against cuts. Um and we've been raising uh that the um discrimination of all sorts and the cuts to welfare um, uh, um and the, the the impact of austerity for for what is we're now twenty seventeen, for seven years now. So that's not changed. Um this UN uh condemnation or um concluding recommendations that we got yesterday is a it's a culmination of all those seven years because we only we signed the um convention in twenty I think uh, 2005. I think I remember because I think it was actually Scope who uh, hosted.
2: Yes. A, um, and, also,
7: and also yeah. like,
2: there's the news today also, Well, there has been the news from Scope that, that there's been a lack of progression around challenging stigma since even the 2012 Paralympic Games which we'll be talking to someone who's worked with Paralympians um, just shortly I want to bring the conversation over to Michael Newman who's a Discrimination in Law, um, Employment Law Specialist. In what ways Michael do you feel like the uh, the UK or, or people in general um, both able peop- able-bodied people and also people of all ages including young people living with disabilities can challenge uh, the UK government and actually um, see progress?
8: Well, although there are lots of employment rights, I think one of the things that needs to be done is enforcing those rights. So not just having them in the abstract, but actually putting them into place. Uh, A big part of that is access to justice, the removal of um, employment tribunal fees that we've seen recently is going to play a big part in that. But then there's something outside of the law as well, and that's talking about it and challenging uh, assumptions, challenging stereotypes, and getting people to realise that this is really valuable, not just for disabled people, but for society as large.
2: Yeah, definitely. But but with regard to if if people, and this is to the whole panel here, if people are unable to speak about it perhaps to to their family members, as we found worth, worth working with our ISIS Research UK recently, but also unable to sort of put it on a CV. How can we honestly expect people to start opening up and start an honest conversation? That's to, to the whole panel. Um, can I
7: can I come in here? Go ahead. So it's, we trade disabled people, but there's also disparity amongst disabled people themselves because it's not just a, a, an, an anonymous block because. Disabled people are, you know, uh, are also women, BME, etc. So all those um, have uh, intersect as well. Um, it's not just the government; it's also when um, disabled people actually cut themselves for and or are part of, of going to RAG or ESA that we find that you know there are. There, I say, charities should take advantage of disabled people um, when they apply, and not and not not pay them any 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 money for for doing that, like in welfare. Definitely,
2: and, and back,
7: back to it. So it's not. So it's not. I mean, obviously, the government has a the DWP has a huge part to play in it, but there are some other. Uh, people, employment, employers, well, so complete complicated. Yeah, but, but but position.
2: Eleanor, Eleanor, back to, and also to the to the whole to the whole crew here. Back to the point that, that, that there's there's a need for conversation and there's a need for people to start those honest conversations. But but we're finding that people are unable to do that even on CVs or to their family members. Um, how what are the what are the gang think in the room?
6: Well, the vast majority of of people don't want to be defined by their disability, and indeed, why why should they? Yes. Um, and with people with arthritis. Seventy-eight um, percent feel um, that society doesn't understand them because they they don't look any different to anyone else, and and it's an invisible condition. So, you're right; there is that that stigma, that self-imposed stigma of of not wanting not wanting to be defined by your condition, not wanting to to, to talk about it. And that's why we've been running this campaign to highlight um, the real impact of arthritis and to encourage people to talk because through acknowledging the problem you can start finding the solutions and often in the workplace they're really really simple solutions and as you say it's about having that conversation i'm sure that's the same
0: thing yeah absolutely so you know you can change laws but you don't change hearts and minds at the same time and we run a campaign called end the awkward which um, the polling reveals that two-thirds of the british public admit that they feel awkward around disabled people because they don't know what to do they don't know what to say Um, so talking about it bringing it into the workplace is really really important and we should be in a position where disabled people are able to talk not just openly about their conditional impairment but really proudly about who they are and what they bring to a workplace when we talk to disabled people one of the things that they say is you know i've spent my life being tenacious having to fight for where i am those are skills that every workplace should
8: want we should be having a bun fight of employers wanting to employ disabled people because of those skills I mean, I think End the Awkward is a great example of a campaign that's been really successful. And I also think you're right, Richard, in terms of shifting the burden from individuals to companies. Companies should be putting policies on their website saying what they'll do for reasonable adjustments. And they should be giving examples of what they've done in the past so that people say, ah, it it could work for me. I can see what they've done for other people and I can envisage myself being part of that organisation and if we think that employers have part of the responsibility as well then maybe people will feel more comfortable about coming forward so just to do a quick go around um, and I'd like
2: to ask a question is it uh, who's at fault here in not uh, enabling these courageous conversations to happen Um, and should we actually expect um, people who are living with disabilities to even uh, to have the bravery sometimes to have these conversations is it the government is it employers is it friends and family or is it a combination of the of of everyone and i'd like to offer that to whoever whoever wants to answer first
0: I mean, I think fault isn't kind of the way I'd put it. I think it's, we need all of these solutions. So the government needs to make tailored support available for disabled people. Those disabled people who can and want to work should get tailored support to allow them to stay in the workplace. We all have a responsibility to change attitudes and employers have a responsibility to be looking at the people that work for them, but also the kind of the business case. I mean, I take really great confidence from looking at, say, Stonewall's Workplace Equality Index. When that was launched about 15 years ago, there were about 10% of the people in the top 100 LGBT friendly employers who didn't want to be named because they were embarrassed about being on that list. But they now fight over who has the best LGBT network and who can attract that talent. That's exactly what disability should be as well. These are yeah. great untapped potential. A million people, a million disabled people can and want to work in Britain but aren't getting the support to do that. That's an injustice that we need to
8: tackle. As
7: the disabled women who have been you know, employed actually in the university, I can say that it's actually quite. It's not as easy because my disability is very visible. It's not that I'm hiding there. Um, but you, you do get those. Uh, the disabledism does come in, um, you know, and and there, there is there are there are fears about how people how how they can approach you. Actually, what the story is. Um, how they can accommodate you because they don't always talk to you about accommodation because they fear that they might not be able to do it. For example, uh, for me, it was an accessible toilet. It took them 18 months to put one in. Um, really? Okay. Yes, it's at the university.
2: Yeah, so so, it's, a, it's about almost empowering employers to, to start those conversations and to listen, I guess, to their employees more.
7: Yes, and the legislation is there, you yeah. know, it, it, it is there, um, they have, to, they, they are supposed to enforce it, but so, because they know that they might not be able to, or they, they, they usually use costs, even though some of the things don't cost a lot, you know, it's it, a barrier which is not
2: spoken. Yeah, and, and with regard to the legislation, Michael, um, could you give us a bit of a thought and feeling into... Well, essentially, who is at fault here? Is it it the government? Is it uh, friends and family that need to encourage more speaking and and opportunities to start those conversations? Or is it employers? And how can we facilitate and help them?
8: Well, again, I I wouldn't want to attribute faults. What I wanted to do is make sure that the burden isn't placed uniquely and exclusively on individuals. Um, I think the government can provide more in terms of funding because cuts have been ongoing since austerity and and well before then. Um, But what we should also realise is the Equality Act um, doesn't just extend to employment, we're talking about service providers, we're talking about public functions. Um, Anyone who falls into these categories has an obligation to disabled people. Um, But yes, in terms of who's at fault in most of the cases I see, it's the employer. Um, And maybe not deliberately. but uh, Well, I'd hope certainly not deliberately. But, well, you do, you do get examples of blatant, uh, you know, and direct discrimination. But there are lots of cases where people are unthinkingly, unwittingly acting on assumptions and not realising that perhaps very simple, very minor adjustments uh, to a workplace can have an incredible difference in terms of someone being able to access work. And is there a particular
2: things, easy things that
8: employers can do to help and facilitate
2: um, disability or or their employees that are perhaps struggling to to get in work or to stay in work?
6: Yeah, I'd like to make the point as well, we talk about employers as this amorphous group but actually they're human beings and having conversations human being to human being that's line managers, that's colleagues and that's creating the opportunity to have conversations on a regular basis, not just when you apply for a job but as you go through your working life Um, arthritis can fluctuate enormously one day you can be fine the next day you cannot get out of bed how do you manage to tell your employer and your colleague you know it it's really really tough so having the ongoing conversation and feeling safe to be able to raise something and that's about people's relationships um it's about person to person it's about having a more disabled friendly society having a more arthritis friendly society yeah um and and does
2: it also come down to trust as well because employee employees and employers need to trust their employees to be honest and open about how they're feeling and and to, to sort of cultivate that culture of trust
6: yeah, I think so. Cultivating the culture of trust where you feel you can talk about how your condition is impacting on you, but also trusting that someone's going to listen and maybe take action. As you say, some some of the solutions are really simple. Giving people time off for medical appointments, um, changing work patterns, letting people come in a bit later so they're not on a crowded tube. Um, sitting Sitting down for long periods of time can be impossible for some people, so why have meetings where everybody has to sit around a table, you know? bring in breaks, give people um, portable stools so that they can, if they're in a standing job, maybe take a rest every now and again. They can be really simple things.
2: That's brilliant. And also there's transferable (laughs) skills as well for people with disabilities uh, there's an incredible amount of um, stigma but also challenges that they have faced in their life which then is hopefully giving them trans- transferable skills to then bring to the workplace I want to bring the conversation just finally uh, in this, this final section over to austerity and um, Ma- Michael you, you mentioned austerity uh, earlier and um, in what ways, because we've seen obviously the news this morning, the UN denouncing the UK um, as terrible in terms of its, its facilitation of, of, e- of equality and, and openness to, to embracing uh, people with disabilities and helping improving their lives. Um, in what ways have, have austerity crippled that progress?
8: Well, I think we have to look at the disproportionate impact that cuts have had on minorities. Um, and lots of work has been done by, say, the Fawcett Group on the impact it's had on women, but I think uh, similar research shows the impact on disabled people. And that's partly because of the lack of other opportunities. If if reasonable adjustments or access to work is cut for disabled individuals, there may be nowhere else to go. Whereas for able bodied people, it may be that they have more of a range of options. If they're made redundant from one job, they can perhaps find another job more easily. Um, so I think it's looking at the dispro- disproportionate impact um, that we see the real um, effect of austerity on disabled people.
2: And is there anything that you'd advise from a legal perspective that people could do to challenge um, the effects of austeri- austerity in progress t- t- on its effect on
8: progress? Uh, as a lawyer, there's only going to be one answer, which is bring claims in tribunals and courts. But I mean, I recognise that that's not the only way to get change. And sometimes campaigning and starting conversations can be far more effective. But um, in terms of enforcing legal rights it's got to be about bringing claims and getting uh court orders to say you must do this
2: fantastic and just to just to bring this round to everyone on the team here so um, um, Olivia, could you tell us a little bit about your feelings on on that particular subject
6: um i I agree austerity um, causes causes problems for, for for people many people aren't even aware of um, the options that they have, there's not enough promotion of the access to work scheme as it is, so it can only get worse. So, I really agree, having the conversation, um, highlighting the issue, bringing it alive. Um, and looking for change has to, be, has to be a solution I completely
2: agree I completely am giving people the freedom and, and um, the, the feeling of freedom that they can, they can actually start those conversations and support them in that um, Eleanor over to you is there things, simple things that we can do to help challenge um, the effects of austerity I
7: okay, think we have to acknowledge the fact that for example we, we um, I, I mentioned about the effect of austerity about women well yes. when you are a disabled woman it impacts you doubly and if you're bme it impacts you trebly. you know and three times two three times yes so I, I i i don't have an answer i mean you know um <laughs> i really don't i mean i'm hoping that this um completing recommendations that the government will pick up yeah. and certainly the, the elections have been affected. I mean, um, I mean, they, they can see that Theresa uh, May maybe didn't get the kind of vote that she wanted, that, you know, the effect of austerity has affected the Yeah. So this, this might have an impact
2: definitely and, and hopefully the news from the UN has maybe given them a kick up the arse to push them in the right direction I hope. Um, so uh, Richard, could you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on austerity, how we can challenge that uh, in every day and also encourage and support people with disabilities to start those honest and open conversations?
0: I think it's had a real impact so actually if you look at some of the changes that were brought in just earlier this year um, ESA, Employment Support Allowance which is a hugely important um, benefit to get people back into work, was cut from £100 to £70 a week the idea that taking £30 a week off some one is going to motivate them get to get into work beggars belief the one thing i'd say we just need to challenge is narrative i think it's incredibly short-sighted to do that if you want to grow the economy and you want to have the strong and stable economy that we, we all talk about getting disabled people into work is good for that we've done calculations that shows if we get a million disabled people back into work by 2030 the british economy will be 45 billion pounds every year bigger That's a huge change. So we need to say that actually we can't be short-sighted. We need to get disabled people into work for the good of disabled people, but for the good of the economy and for the workplace as well. And I think that's an important narrative for us to push back on. The other thing that I would say is that I think austerity has had a really devastating impact in the public narrative. If we only have to pick up a newspaper at any point over the last say five years or so, to see that the narrative around scroungers, benefit scroungers that has been so pervasive to justify some of these cuts has had a huge impact on how disabled people are viewed in society and that's something that we need to continue to challenge.
2: Definitely, and I think this all goes to the point of uh, similarly the point you were making with Stonewall and their Equality Index, it goes to the point of, for lack of a better word, challenging and encouraging normalisation of an issue which, as you've put it, uh, Richard, uh, ending the awkward, getting everyday people to, st- to talk about this, but also then, um, Olivia, with your campaign it's a joint problem, it's something that affects everyone that needs to, and we all need to address it, um, but equally it's about supporting and encouraging the voice of people living with disabilities to have the freedom and openness to do that so thank you so much um, to olivia to michael to richard and to eleanor for joining us on that really empowering discussion thank you so much i'm sorry we don't have a lot of time to to talk um but thank you so much for joining us in the studio um so up next on the show i'll be speaking to an actual paralympian Uh, joining me on the show will be helen scott mbe and we'll be straight back after this short break
6: Fubar radio presents Harriet
2: Rose with I feel like it's easier or even harder now to grow up under the spotlight. All right, Much. Parkinson, that I'm was just, a really good question. I'm just interested. No,
1: no, if you look at the Drew Barrymore's and the Michael Jackson's, I think back then it was more like, you're a kid, but we're just going to let you party with people that are adults, and therefore drugs and alcohol were
3: a bit more of right. a problem. Yeah.
1: I mean, I can't imagine being famous at even 18. I just, I was really annoying. <laughs> I was so annoying. What about you? Were you really annoying as well? You were just sort of like no, emo. Just, just a
2: cool guy, really. I
1: don't think you were because I've seen your passport photo.
2: (laughs) That guy had a lot of fun.
6: Every Thursday, Harry Arose Rose with Noza. From
7: 4pm, FUBAR Radio. FUBAR Radio presents... FUBAR Radio presents... Politics on FUBAR.
2: I just want to say thank you again so much to Olivia Bell, the Director of External Affairs for Arthritis Research UK, Michael Newman, the Discrimination and Employment Law Specialist, and Richard Lane, the Head of Communications at SCOPE, and finally, Eleanor Lisney, the Founding Member and Coordinator of Sisters of Frida, the Disabled Women's Collective. It takes a lot to these people to be coming out and taking up their time to have a chat with us today, so I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. So joining me on the line now is Helen Scott, MBE. Uh, so many of you remember the moment when Helen piloted uh, Parasite Cyclist Sophie Thornhill to glory at the Rio Paralympics this summer Helen also won silver and bronze medals alongside Aileen McGlynn at London 2012 um so Helen thanks so much for joining us today
7: hi thank Hello. You for
2: having me no no problem at all can you start by telling us um what does it actually mean to pilot another a, a colleague at the Olympics could tell us a little bit um, about what, what that means
1: yeah, so a lot of people are a little confused when I say I'm a pilot. They obviously think I uh, fly a plane or something like that. But, um,
2: I'm sure it's not. not. <laughs> quite a,
1: it's definitely not that. Um, but it's not far off the speeds um, we try and get to on the bike. So um, basically, yeah, I um, I ride the front of a tandem bicycle, which is a, a bike that uh, has two sets of pedals, two um Two saddles and um, two handlebars, so it's basically two bikes put together, um, and I am the eyes of that bike. Um, I pilot a visually impaired rider on the who sits on the back and pedals on the back of that bike. Um, essentially, all tandems that you see racing around the world um, always have an able bodied person on the front and a visually impaired rider on the back. so Thank you. so yeah.
2: Thank you so much. Was, I mean, I didn't actually know what piloted mean before I was researching um, your work. So it's it's actually wonderful uh, to to kind of give that expression. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, so just on particular that the, the notion from scope um, that there's been little progression in challenging of stigma. Um, of disabled people in the workplace but also generally in society um, since the 2012 Paralympic Games and and, and there was such hope that that visibility would actually encourage much more progression in this subject. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about um, how how does that make you feel firstly and also yeah well firstly on that how does that make you feel?
1: Um, I mean it's sad I think that um, that's still sort of an an, an issue at the moment I mean we're five years five years ago since London Paralympics actually Um, and it's just sad to think that in the workplace it's sort of not improved but certainly from my point of view um, it it definitely has sort of in terms of the support that we get as as Paralympic athletes um, you know it's shown sort of I mean, fighting a different issue which hopefully we'll be able to touch on later but certainly um, I'm sure a lot of the listeners might have watched London 2017 in the Athletic Stadium yes. uh, with the back-to-back, you know, World Championships so the Paralympic uh, guys came first and then obviously the able-bodied um, and, you know, that was a that was a packed-out stadium I was actually able to go and watch as well because one of my best friends, Kadina Cox, um, competed and won a gold medal there. Um, so... In terms of the legacy of 2012 for sport on the Paralympic side, it certainly has got better, and don't get me wrong, it's nowhere near sort of where it needs to be um, in terms of comparing to sort of the olympic guys but it's certainly got better but it's just really important that you know we as athletes um help help improve that and keep and keep the legacy going
2: yeah and part of sort of keeping that legacy going and, and helping your co-workers um i was curious helen how did you first get involved with um piloting paracyclists
1: Um, So, I joined um, the Great Britain cycling team just out of college um, a long time ago, now it feels, and um, I was part of the able-bodied sprint programme. British Cycling are very good at, like, we train side by side with both the squads, you know, the the paracycling team and and the able-bodied team, so I sort of was mixing it with, with... all the, all the sort of uh, squad members and um, after a year on the programme, it was sort of decided that I would I would be leaving and I would, I would move back home and, and that was sort of the end of my time on the team. Um, however, the head coach of the paracycling team at the time, Chris Ferber. He um, had been watching me over the year and he sort of reached out to me and says, you know, I really think that you'd be a fantastic pilot. Like, please, like, will you give it a go? You know, um, I was quite resistant at first, you know, as a stubborn sort of 19 year old. I was like, no way. You know, I want to race on my solo bike. Um, I'm going to the Olympic Games and, and that's that. Um but was persuaded by sort of my parents, like, just give it a go, you know. And um, I jumped on for the first time with Neil Saki, who is multiple Paralympic gold medalist and absolutely loved it. And that, I've been doing it ever since, basically. So this is sort of my, I think it's my eighth year of piloting the tandem and I, w- I would not change it for the world. That's
2: wicked. And was there particularly something about this, this area of the sport that really kind of draws you in?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously quite inspiring sort of having somebody on the back of the bike who can't see and they put all their trust in me to make sure that we get safely around that track um you know and to me i love working as a team as well and it it really is a team event although when you're on the track sat on that start line it feels like you're the only one on that bike um you're certainly not you know you're on it you're you're on a team and, and with Aileen and with sophie i've just found it really um like a real good challenge and it just i love like i love being a part of a team and and that's really special to be able to win lose and drop you know um together on a bike and you know these guys are phenomenal athletes you know they have you know they've got a lot of challenges around training that you know they can't get out on the road unless it's with myself or another pilot and so they have lots of um adaptations they need to make in their life to be able to get to where they are and to get to where we are it's a lot you know difficult much more difficult road for them so it's
2: really inspiring for me and is there could you talk to us a little bit about the kind of because this is from a perspective of all employers kind of making it more um, employment more accessible but also sport more accessible is there ways and means that the sport in general has has adapted itself to be more accessible um, to keeping people uh, to encouraging um, disabled people to to partake but also keeping them in the sport ongoing
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, um, sort of my expertise is only sort of in the cycling world. um, But I know that there are a lot of um, cycling teams now who are opening their arms to sort of paracyclists. Um, British Cycling put out... um, you know groups and things like that for people to come and have a go of yeah. all, on all sorts of different bikes so obviously you've got um trike riders you've got hand cyclists people with sort of spinal injuries and who aren't able to walk um and i've seen that there's lots of sessions being held sort of at the manchester velodrome and around the country that basically encourage people to come in and and give it a go and um i hope that's really encouraging and you know i mean it's a little bit off off topic, but I um, I was at the, as I said, at the 2017 World Champs down in in London a few last months and there was a little boy I noticed sort of at the front with a blade um, leg and you know for him to be watching those guys running the Richard Whiteheads and you know Johnny Peacock and things like that thinking you know I can do that one day it's just um, it's amazing and I think for events like that to be happening and the tickets were so cheap so it was so accessible for people to come and watch as well Um, it obviously just spreads the love and you know I think people are um you know, it was a testament to sort of how popular parasport is now because, as I say, that stadium was nearly full um, and a, it's a big capacity stadium, so it was amazing to see. I just wish it would spread sort of across all of the all of the other para sports,
2: really. And and also, I think it goes back to the issue of visibility as well. We were talking earlier with our guest um, about, Jared, the MP, about essentially why there's need for visibility across any form of inequality um, or any section of uh, society that's discriminated against. Um, Now, I mean, the sport provides incredible... Uh, visibility for for people who are able bodied who are supporting those. Um, mm. no in, in which ways have you, can you tell us a story or two in terms of you've seen sort of that inspiring, inspired um, young person who who is encouraged to kind of take up the sport?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I guess Sophie, who I who I pilot, is is sort of uh, one of those sort of stories. You know, she. Um, she's only 21 and she keeps telling me how old i am now but she watched yeah. um i think it was beijing um you know she'd never been on a bike before and she thought she was never going to be able to ride a bike you know on a tour let alone um you know at the paralympic games and she she watched aileen um and ellen hunter win in beijing and, and thought Do you know what like i'd really love to give that a go and she and a friend who could point her in the right direction which was a sports city a Velo cycling club down here at the manchester velodrome um, and they have a few sort of tandems to try out and she jumped on um and sort of the rest is history i guess you know there was someone who could pilot her for a few years until she sort of made it onto sort of the development team here so you know it's just um making people aware that you know no matter what disability you have you're able to get into sport in some
2: way you just need to you know find the avenues that enable this yeah I spot on i think uh, now we've also spot we've also been talking about the issues of employability in general um and i wanted to ask so from from your perspective like when parallel pa, um, sorry para-athletes retire from competing professionally um, are there issues around uh, future employment
1: um, I think, to be honest, it's not it's not solely sort of just um, for the para Of course, there are sort of obstacles that um, c- come into that a little bit more than an able-bodied athlete retiring. But um, a lot of the athletes, and not, certainly a lot of the cyclists who I work with, have um, come into the sport a little bit later on, so their injuries sort of haven't happened until they're a little bit um, older in life. But some are ex servicemen men and women, and some have had sort of some of were professional. Sort of athletes and then got injured um, so because of that reason like they're already sort of uh, have a degree and things like that and they've probably worked beforehand so in terms of sort of retiring there's often um, you know something for them to go straight back into but because the sport's growing and a lot of youngsters are now being inspired to get into it and stuff they are coming onto the squad quite young with, without any, any qualifications really so I think it's really important that you know, the national governing bodies are helped these athletes um throughout their full sort of time as full time athletes, um, to get the qualifications that are needed so that when they do leave, um, they are, you know, set to to go into the, the working world I guess.
2: Yeah, completely. And, and just finally, I wondered if you had any kind of final remarks on, in the light of the, the UN denouncing the UK in specific for their, for their lack of commitment in supporting people who are disabled. Um, how does that feel as a, as a British um, Olympian uh, to, to hear that news? And, and what more can we do to kind of pressure the UK government to actually commit to this?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is it is really sad because, obviously, I, you know, I live and breathe sort of para-sport and, you know, the guys who I train with are unbelievable and race with. Um, and, as I say, like, we're sort of in a little bubble in this sporting world, but it's, you know, it's it's really apparent that, you know, it, there needs to be more um, coverage of sort of what, what we're up to, you know... Um, there's a, a paracycling world champs going on in South Africa at the moment. And yeah. I bet nobody knows, you know, that that's happening, you know, unless you're a keen sort of, uh, Twitter follower of British cycling, you'd have no idea. So I think it's just, you know, I think we need to have more events that encourage, um, para-athletes or, you know, uh, people who are really interested in trying something new if they've got a disability to, you know, all around the country, you know, there's, there's a lot of fields, there's a lot of grass we can, like, do these sessions on. It doesn't have to be in, like, these uh, fabulous arenas and things like that. Um, and just... You know, just something similar to sort of London 2017 where, you know, the, the able-bodied world champs came after the, the parry, you know, having them join together often uh, encourages more people to sort of see what it's all about and, and things like that. So, um, I just, I just think they just need, it just needs to be talked a little bit about more. I mean, Channel 4 did an amazing job for us in, at the Paralympics and for, you know, three weeks we were the talk of the country and then suddenly it sort of dies down again so it's just about keeping that going really
2: yeah definitely i think it's, it's definitely an issue of visibility um more than than the most um so thank you helen thank you so much for joining us as i said it takes a lot for our um for our uh, speakers to come on and, and give their time so i really do appreciate you coming on board and, and having a chat no with problem. me today no
1: problem thanks so much for having
2: me no worries thanks helen thank
1: you
2: no problem so yeah it's, it, I think it's been a really interesting hour um, I've definitely I don't I, I won't confess to knowing everything about um, disability and I was quite daunted um, when uh, sort of faced with having to fill a whole hour with talking about something that I know a lot about in, in inequality through the work we do with Shape History the social change company but this was a learning experience for me and I think off the back of what we've just learned I think it's its absence of role models and the need for visibility it's the, the, the fact that we need to help and support employers to start those difficult conversations or potentially difficult conversations with their employees. Um, but also, it's about bloody tackling the government with these the austerity measures. How embarrassing after Brexit, how embarrassing after the European community somewhat uh, laughing at the UK, but it's struggling to negotiate a good deal for, the, for, the, for Britain um, or the UK government. And in the light of the UN now denouncing the UK in specific Um, for its lack of commitment to supporting people who are disabled. How can we come together to actually lobby the government and make them get off their ass and do something about this because it's not fair? Anyway, thank you so much. Um, Excuse that little rant at the end. Um, Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, I'm Mike from Shape History. I've been leading the FUBAR Radio's uh, politics show this uh, Friday. And yeah, uh, now we're going to play out with a Plymouth Faith's new single, which is called Crybaby.